This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, good evening, and welcome back, everybody, after that summer break. Well, if you could call it a summer. Certainly, if you lived in Northern Ireland, you saw plenty of rain. But I hope you all had a fantastic time. Now, my good wife, Dr. Donna, and I, we didn't get away. But we did enjoy some of the shenanigans you all got up to when we watched you on Twitter and Instagram. Goodness, you teachers out there are a creative lot, even on your holidays. Now, don't tell anybody, but there's a little thing called the Rugby World Cup coming up. Going to happen in Paris. Ireland are the world's number one team. Everybody wants to beat them. Poor England are besotted with troubles. Now, 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 stop turning off, you people. Listen on. So, maybe, just perhaps, maybe we'll get a quick run over to Paris and support Ireland in the Rugby World Cup. So if you get a chance and you see me there, don't be afraid to say hello. So tonight we kick off the new term with a cracking topic and that is mobile phones in schools. My goodness, they are the bane of everybody. Now a lot of schools back this week and I would say everybody's back tomorrow, certainly on Monday and primary school maybe but certainly post-primary school everybody will be worried and stressing about mobile phones i know a lot of schools have decided that they're having a blanket ban you're not even allowed your phone in school you're not allowed any device where you can communicate that'll be interesting to see how that goes to talk about that and tonight we have a really experienced expert emily Cherkin all the way from Seattle, who's going to tell us a lot about mobile phones, the problems, the difficulties, and how schools can manage mobile phones. So without further ado, let's get to it. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Hello and good evening and welcome back after your great summer holidays, everybody. Emily, are you on the other end? I see you've joined up. Yes, I am. I'm here. Can you hear me? Oh my goodness, it's like you're in the room beside me. Yes, yeah, you're coming along really clear. Excellent, yes. So Emily, you're in Seattle. I am, yes, other side of the world almost. (laughs) Other side of the world is right. Um, What is it now, it's about lunchtime with you? It it? is, yes, about 1 p.m. So I'll have lunch after this. (laughs) Oh, good. (laughs) And what's today, what's the weather like? Oh, it's, I'm afraid we're living up to our stereotype, a bit gray and cloudy, um, but you know, oh, it's, yeah. it's been lovely. I can't complain. We, we've had pretty, pretty reasonable summer weather here. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nine o'clock here. I'm in Northern Ireland and yes. it's dark. Yes. It's dark already. <laughs> and, you know, we were thinking about actually turning the heat on at one stage today. Oh. So 
yeah, the summer's really over, I suppose, and I everybody goes so. back to school in a day or two. So yes, yes, yeah. here as well. We've had some schools start this week, and some schools start next week. So it's it is the season. <laughs> same here. Yes, yes, same here. Yeah. So Emily, I don't know a lot about uh, Seattle except for your absolutely wonderful program, Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> love that show um in fact there's a channel you know still has it here they broadcast two shows every morning oh. and they're all on catch-up and uh, we absolutely love it i oh. think they did about 200 210 shows oh my we've seen them all about 10 times so uh wow it's more than i have i i have to admit i've seen some but i do believe most of it was not shot in seattle ironically so i would say yes yeah some studio somewhere yeah yes yes Mm -hmm. no well and and i do have to admit my knowledge of northern ireland might be limited to the dairy girls series which i loved (laughs) yes yes you're a big fan of the show yeah i loved it loved it loved it so much yes brilliant creative funny smart yes i loved it it's amazing just how how well that show travels it struck a chord somehow and it it travels really well and you know the girls don't hold back on their accents or anything (laughs) yeah well did you find that well like was it authentically representative of what your experience in northern ireland is would you say Oh, yeah, I taught plenty of girls like that. Yes. (laughs) Believe me. (laughs) I certainly did, yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. That's very much very true reflection, yeah. Oh, good. And when we were talking yesterday, you know, you mentioned about the music in the show as well. Yes, yes, yes. It was my high school. So the time period of the show is exactly my, I was the same age as those girls at that era. So it was, it resonated that way as well, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a great creative piece, yeah, coming out of Northern Ireland. Yes. But schools have changed nowadays. A bit, a bit, yes. They have changed a bit. And uh, I think you suffer from some of the same problems we do, and that is you're trying hard to teach, and you've got classes, you're trying hard to run and manage a school, and you do well, and you do well with the children in front of you and so on, but... They all yes. have handheld devices now. They've got mobile phones. You know, yes. they can record you. Their concentration's up the left. There are all sorts of things. And Emily, you yeah. have a lot of experience about this. So, you know, how does it come about that, you know, this is an area of interest for you? Yeah, well, thank you for asking. Um, I did teach uh, what we call middle school here. So uh, yeah. seventh grade, which is about 12 to 13-year-olds, Um and I did that in for about 12 years. I started in the classroom around 2003. And, mm-hmm. you know, that, as you well know, was pre-smartphone for children, pre-social media. And even, even still the tech use in school was pretty minimal, you know, some word processing here or there. But uh, it was a very different world 20 years ago. <laughs> and over the 12 years I spent in the classroom, I saw a very big change in a couple of ways, you know, one primarily being the way in which students started to interact online initially outside of school, right? You know, no, no student in 2005 was excited to have a cell phone because it was, they were embarrassed, you know, it's like, oh, my parents make me take this, you know, it's, it's, they want to reach me all the time kind of a thing. Yeah. 
And then, you know, just 10, 12 years later, I left the classroom in 2015 and I surveyed my students before I left and 95% of them had smartphones by that point, you know, and Mm -hmm. I live in Seattle, which is a pretty tech, tech heavy city for sure. But it was pretty shocking to witness that big transition uh, culturally and just what it did to my students social and emotional lives, you know, just things even that I had no awareness of, you know, they'd come into school and talk about, oh, I got left out or somebody posted this picture in a party I wasn't invited to, or somebody started this Facebook group about how much they hate me. And it was like, whoa, (laughs) I can't ignore this. I can't pretend this isn't part of their everyday fabric of their lives. It, It really, really had an impact. So you know, it was, as we say, the elephant in the room. And I just decided I had to talk about it. So, you know, I I fortunately had a school that was pretty supportive of me having those conversations with kids. And the other piece of it that they, my students really taught me was that, you know, this is our parents too. You know, our parents are on their phones. Our parents are texting Mm -hmm. and driving. Our parents are on social media. And so it was kind of a aha moment for me of like, oh, wait, this isn't a kid problem. This is a grown-up problem that's affecting children. And so that's be- that became my my drive to start working with parents primarily in schools, but to try to help educate them because yeah. that's the ripple effect, right? Like what we do is what our children will do. Yes, of course, they will copy everything we do. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. The good, the bad, yeah. and the ugly. <laughs> Okay, indeed, yeah, yeah. But Emily, that that, that sounds very good, you know, that you, you know, addressed that and you had a sympathetic school uh, that allowed you to address that. One of the things I always talk about, you know, uh, is that the whole child comes to school, the whole child comes up that avenue every morning. Yes. So, you know, if there are social issues, if there are mobile phone, if there are social media issues, we do have to address them. Yeah. I, I think we educate the whole child. So, yeah, I'm glad to hear that that happened. Yeah. Wouldn't have yeah, happened in absolutely. every school here, but, you know, most of yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, I'm I'm speaking to my experience, which is now seven years ago that I left the classroom. And I it is a sea change since then as well. You know, it's only gotten more of an issue, more access, younger ages, um, more platforms, less oversight, right? Like, you know, it's just, I had a parent tell me it's like holding back a tsunami with sandbags, you know, you just, you just can't, like, it just feels so overwhelming and so fast. So, you know, I'm with you that we cannot just teach content um, at the expense of all of the implications of the social and emotional dynamics because stressed children don't learn. (laughs) So it's, you know, we can, we can't not talk about it. Yeah. And we can't not talk about it is right. And I think we're better uh, address it head on rather than have it as an elephant in the room. Yes. Yes, I agree. I agree. And, you know, I think it really varies. You know, some schools are better about talking about it. Some schools want to pretend it doesn't exist. You know, it really runs the gamut. And I I 
I talk to and I visit a lot of different schools and it really does vary. I think mm -hmm. one of the things that really muddies the water is also the increased use of screen-based tech for learning and at school. And that yes. can look yeah. like a whole bunch of things. You know, initially as a teacher, I was asked to do a lot more of that for my teacher management side of things, you know, grading online and posting assignments. And I will be, I mean, fully honest, I did not like it at first and I still don't, that's my bias yeah. still, but it became yeah. even more challenging than when we started asking students to do that. Right. And now they get devices from the school. So, you know, we talk about the phone use for children, which is yes, absolutely a huge issue, but it gets very complicated when that is also provided by the school or the expectation is that children will access online materials for school, right? So then yeah. can teachers even talk about it without looking hypocritical, for example, right? Like, you know, you tell me not to do this on my phone, but I'm being asked to do this on a school computer, right? So it's, it's tricky. It is tricky. Yeah. But maybe that takes us right into the nitty gritty then yeah of, you know there there is legitimate use and yes. there is and, and maybe for want of a better word like illegitimate use um, yes so what what do you feel what do you see as the real problems of children having mobile phones in their hands in school time so the mobile phone in schools to me has multiple problems, right? I mean, I think there is simply the distracting factor that if it's there, it is a distraction. And I don't mean just to the child who owns it, it's a distraction to the children around them as well. Um, sure. And to the teachers, you know, I can't imagine trying to be a teacher today and having, you know, 25 kids in my room and trying to manage and police their personal devices while I'm also trying to teach content, you know, that's never gonna feel good or successful. So that, you know, I have a lot of empathy for teachers who have to, to handle that. Um, of course, so it's yeah. the distraction, but then, you know, I think there's equity issues, you know, not every kid has a phone, even though it feels like they do, it's still not the yeah. case. I yeah. think it's a huge uh, crutch for, problem solving for mental health resilience for um social skill development you know i think kids turn to their phones to escape difficult feelings um which yeah. i think is deeply problematic from the whole child development standpoint right we need kids to have those experiences that's how they grow into resilient adults <laughs> um, definitely yeah. You know, and then that, in addition to all of that, the platforms they're using, the, the the social media apps, the games, whatever it is they're using, and primarily it is for entertainment. It is not for, you know, creative pursuits. I mean, certainly some kids do that, but it tends to be mm -hmm. a very small minority. But, you know, it's the design itself. You know, it's we, you know, I know here in the U.S., we, we refer to it as persuasive design, manipulative tech. I'm sure that's a universal concept and maybe just called different things, but... It is how it is designed. It is designed to hook their attention and hold their attention. It taps into their neural pathways. So putting it down is not just simply a question of turn it off or stop. <laughs> it mm. is literally a hijacked neural pathway. So, you know, you're not yeah. fighting the child. You're fighting a brain, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, chemical that's like holding them on. And so, you know, forget about teaching. That's, that's the battle becomes... How do I get them off? How do I keep them from using it? And, 
you know, and I, I, I mean, I could go on. I think parents can complicate this a lot. You know, I think their intentions are good. They want to be able to reach their kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say, I think in the United States, we have the deep shame of school shootings that is driving a lot of parental fear about um, having access to technology. Parents feel that that's an important thing to send kids to school with because of that fear. And yeah, I can understand that. Yeah, I, I can mm-hmm. too. And yet mm-hmm. I and I know this is going to rub some people the wrong way. I feel like as awful, atrocious, appalling, embarrassing as it is that our country deals with that, it is still statistically a rare phenomenon. And the dangers that come from giving children unlimited access to social media, the Internet and phones is um, deeply dangerous um, yeah. and very common. So. I think, you know, the problem is our, our media and our politics will feed us these fear-based headlines that get our attention and raise our parental anxieties at the expense of thinking about, well, what are the things that really I can focus on that really do matter in the day-to-day lives of my children, you know? And that's yeah. a, that takes a lot of adult courage to, to see and say that. But, yeah, it yes. does. Um, one of the things we'll maybe come on to, you know, I mean, maybe later, what about the parent who does stand up and take a stand? Yeah. You know, they're very isolated. Mm-hmm. But Emily, if we could come back to one thing there. Yes. Um, so as I listen to you then, would you see, you know, trust issues between mm. parents and schools? Oh, yes. I mean, I think trust is a is a big challenge across the board, right? And, and mm. you know, it's and I can only speak to my experience here in the United States, and we've had quite a bumpy ride the last few years with schools and parents and technology and children and mental health. And I, I feel like one of the big challenges is parents tend to get really riled up, perhaps, about the things that they feel like they can control. Um and ignore maybe some of the things that actually are more realistically within their control. And, you know, and I, and I think what I'm getting at too, is that there's just a lot of defensiveness around this issue for parents. I think they feel responsible, embarrassed, ashamed, concerned, and they are guilty themselves of using technology excessively. I mean, myself included, I'm not here to cast stones. I, I really, I, I understand that. Um, And I think there's confusion about what the schools are asking parents and children to do with digital tech that gets really confusing. And yeah, so I think the erosion of trust is there. But it's funny, I was taking some notes uh, when, before this, and I, one of the words I did write down is that, you know, trust is also so important for parents to have of teachers. You know, I think the erosion. Oh, that's what I was getting Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, it, and I would just, dis- I would differentiate between administration and districts and, you know, policymakers and teachers, because I think mm-hmm. teachers are caught very often between a rock and a hard place with what they're asked to do by their supervisors and what they know in their hearts is good teaching and learning. And the problem is, you know, I mean, I think parents are well-intentioned, but most parents aren't teachers, you know? <laughs> it's like, yeah. you know, I feel very uniquely privileged to have been both a teacher and a parent, you know? And uh, I see often in my own parenting peers a lot of a lack of uh, knowledge about learning and child development and what's really important in a classroom. Um, 
because they just don't know. You know, it's not, I don't walk into a surgical office and expect to know how to do surgery, right? Like I trust that the surgeons know what they're doing. And yeah. I'm afraid that we've taken away a lot of that trust of what teachers no one goes into teaching for the money or the glory, right? No, like, they don't. And that's no. the thing we've taken. I feel that there has just been a real shift away from trusting that teachers know how to do their craft, how to yeah. connect with children. And above you know, all else, I think the relationship between a teacher and a student is going to be what determines whether a child learns. You know, And if we don't... Yeah. And give them the opportunity to do that. It's not going to happen, right? And then it just becomes this self-fulfilling cycle of like, you know, failure and test scores and all of this other stuff that then teachers get blamed for. So of course. I, I have yes, a lot of, of empathy for teachers. Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's being conveyed. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. And we all do. Yeah. 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 I suppose when I, you know, I, I'm retired now, but it's only a year. But, you know, I would have had to deal a lot with, mobile phone issues or technology issues or cyberbullying and yes. all sorts of things that would happen. And, you know, occasionally you would have had a parent in your office and you would be speaking to them and talking to them. And it quite often would just come across very strongly. Yeah. That the parent is suspicious of what happens oh, in the six yes. hours a day. Yes. Um, they may not have been able to voice it or say it, but there was a lot of kind of, um, Hmm. pulling down your character as a school and you Oof. don't know what's what and my child needs this mobile phone yes. and, and so on yeah. and it would particularly gall me because quite often I hmm. taught the parents who were coming in <laughs> yes in fact embarrassing as oh. it is to say I taught the grandparents wow so, you wow. know I know I know I know but yeah but my point is that yeah. Those generations of families, they know the ethos of the school. They know yeah. the quality of care. They mm. know the all-encompassing, educate the whole child, look after them. Yeah. In 37 years in schools, I've never stopped a child from ringing home. In fact, I've often taken a child from a classroom up to the office, right. let them phone a parent, leave them on their own. They can say what they like and so yeah, on. Yeah, you know? so, right. You know, That's a big shift. Well, yeah, and I just wonder how that how that sense of trust and yes, and it's not even the loss of trust. It's it's a kind of suspicion arises. Yes, you know. And I think the tip of that iceberg is actually fear based. I think parents are so afraid, and I'm not sure they could articulate what it is that they're afraid of. I I mean, yeah. I can guess at a few things, but I I think it's fear, and you know. I wonder, you know, and, and when I was a, you know, I was a very young teacher in my first few years, would I have had the confidence to say to a parent, you know, especially one older than me, right? Like, I'm, I think you're afraid of something. What is that? Right? Like, I'm not sure I would have had that ability. But I do wonder if it starts with one of the things I say all the time is to replace judgment with curiosity. And I yeah. think 
one of the things, and this is true for parent to child relationship, parent to teacher, teacher to student, is that we get very judgy of each other, of our, in, you know, the, the motivations for why people might be doing something. And I think social media and technology enforces that, right? I think we're fed those messages. So our, our instinct is to now put up our fists, metaphorically speaking, or quite literally, mm. and fight back, mm. push back, defend myself, you know, troll you before you control me. And unfortunately that doesn't help anyone especially not kids and so you know i guess what i i feel like is how do we identify how do we help parents by finding out what it is they're afraid of right like and i think you know my my hunch is that parents that get in those offices and defend their children it's hard to believe that their kid could do x y or z and yeah because there's such shame and embarrassment that might come with that because they don't know how to handle it because they feel maybe it was my fault that they did that and I didn't stop it. And, you know, I'm here to say it's not our fault, but it's our responsibility. And what if what we want is kids to learn how to problem solve and take responsibility for things like we have to model that as adults and you know that's that's a very this is much broader than just mobile device devices in school right i i realize we're getting kind of uh meta here for lack of a but i think word. you're absolutely right no yeah. I, I do i think you're absolutely right and of course you know th that brings teachers out of the classroom out of the school you're kind of educating the whole community Yes. And, yes. you know, you're trying to say to parents and grandparents, you know, limit the time on devices, be yes. careful what they're at. Now, you know, yes. certainly in my school, you know, we didn't have a problem doing that. You know, we yes. might have had a little sense of discomfort doing it, but occasionally we did send out very strong messages to parents and so on. And Yeah, that's it, good. You know, and, and it has to be comprehensive it can't just be i mean this is my view right i i think the i love i think you use the phrase blanket ban you know for for schools mm. that have these blanket bans of phones or or a, we sometimes call it away for a day right like keeping your phone away for the day but you know i think the challenge is if you have a policy like that does it apply to everyone does it apply to the parents coming in does it apply to the teachers yeah. on campus or the administrators yeah. if it doesn't it's going to be much harder to enforce to get student buy-in to see it as a common good for the community and it gets hard to do that i'm afraid yeah. mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I'm curious, may I ask you a question about what sure, you're, of course, yeah. what was sort of the biggest, you know, be from the beginning to the end in terms of what you saw from, uh, I'm curious of what you see in students as uh, decreased resilience and increased fear and anxieties. You know, I know certainly in the U.S. we see the mental health you know, it's been documented that mental health is a very real thing for for our teens. But is that yeah. would you say you noticed that as well? Very definitely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We've kind of shifted. You know, you said, you know, when you began teaching, I, I probably began quite a bit before you. But, yes. You know, there weren't there weren't mobile phones or anything like right. that. They didn't exist, you know. And when you taught a class, you stood in assembly, you, you, you yes. pretty much had attention and yes. it was up to you to hold it and, and win it, earn it over and hold it. And you pretty much could do that. Yes. But over time, these shiny devices came and not only was the device shiny, but that device could instantly communicate with anyone 
anywhere in the world. Right. So you're busy standing there teaching French verbs and you're doing your damnedest, you know, to do your best. You can't compete. Yeah. And you can't compete is right. That that child's attention is 100% somewhere else. Yes. And I think you're you're right. You you alluded to it earlier. You know, there are not only psychological, but I think there are psychiatric issues with it now, and they, yes. they are along the lines of addiction. Yes. Psychiatric in the sense that the brain structures have changed. Yes, and very children, much. They, they suffer withdrawal. They they have big problems being away from their phone, and those problems are things like you know fear, trauma. Uh, or at least they reflect, you know, yes. you know, trauma or they look similar. You know? Yes, anxiety, depression. Anxiety, yes, very much. And, and yeah. So on, yeah, and you know, I, I always say too that I'm not anti-technology. I'm tech intentional, Far right? From like, it. It's, yeah. you know, mm-hmm. and again, like, look, I, I'm talking to you in Northern Ireland right now, right? Like, this is amazing mm-hmm. that what we can do. And and I I think yeah. you asked earlier, like, well, you know, I don't remember quite what your question was, but it, but one thing I think where we can be more intentional about technology use for schools, whether again, that's in the ed tech itself or in the student device policies is putting skills before screens. You know, that this is a, one of the things that I find is so backwards, you know, is is we give students, in fact, one of the students I worked with uh, who this was probably about six years ago at this point. So at the end of my teaching career, you know, she came in and she's like, I was working as a tutor at that point. She came in and she said, I've got, I've got um, a, a science assignment, right? And she pulls out an iPad because that's what they're using for school. And she's sure. you know, going through all these different apps to try to find her homework and the reading assignment. And after all of this, you know, and she's cutting and pasting answers from a search engine. And at the end, and I said, well, why are you, you know, I'm sort of going, uh, plagiarism, you know, like, how does this work? You know, doesn't your teacher know yeah. that you're cop- copying and pasting? She goes, well, I don't know how to type. And mm-hmm. I was thinking, then why on earth do you have a device for school? <laughs> like, yeah. again, could there be a device used for school at some point? And I have some opinions about what age that should happen. Yes, that's possible. But why are we giving it to them? It's backwards. You know, you don't you don't ask a baby to learn how to read before they learn how to crawl, right? I mean, there's, there's yeah. brain development stuff that needs to happen. So yeah. again, I think I wish I could see a much more intentional um, alignment with development when it comes to the introduction of technology and the, and the, there are incredibly important skills children need about technology. And this again, could be a, applicable to personal devices or school devices, but, you know, thinking about critical thinking skills, right? You know, how do we know if a site or a person online is who they say they are, or that the quote isn't fabricated or the image isn't altered, right? Like these are going to be fundamentally very important skills for children to have as they grow up in this, increasingly digitized world definitely yeah um so you've thought a little bit about you know the age and stage at which devices should be yeah given to children is that right tell, yeah. tell us a bit more about that emily well you know i always get asked at what age should i get my kid a phone what's the first yeah. first age i should give it to them and i always say you know later is better delay as long as possible yeah. because yeah. I have talked to hundreds of parents and never, not once has a parent ever said to me, I wish I'd given my kid a phone sooner. It is yeah. always mm-hmm. the opposite. I wish I'd waited. And I, I think yeah. 
one of the things I, I feel is I always hear, well, I, I often hear from parents with kids, you know, older than 10 years old. And what I wish I could do is hear from parents of kids younger than 10, because it's like you don't know. There's sort of a perfect storm that happens, you know, that you here in the States, we enter middle school around age 10, 11, 12. You, yeah. you know, you're hitting puberty. It's when a lot of other kids yeah. are getting phones, yeah. increased independence. And, you know, bang, you hit this. And as a parent, you might have, this is what I see all the time. You know, these parents of younger kids think they have it figured out. They've been limiting screen time. They've been yeah. so intentional. You know, everything's humming along. And then, woo, you just hit this. <laughs> you know, I say it's like an avocado. You know, it's like not ripe, not ripe, not ripe, too late. <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, it's again, you just you just get blindsided by it. And, and even, you know, again, myself included, I thought I had it all figured out. And then, you know, with my kids in particular, you know, we had a COVID happened and lockdown and all of that interrupted sure. all of it anyway. And in some ways it was a blessing in disguise because my son was entering those middle school years right when he went into lockdown. So he wasn't around the peer pressure of having phones, but he was yeah. online for learning, which was a different problem. So it was a very yeah. mixed um, experience. So, you know, I always say to parents, and this is rather shocking, but I think it's accurate, is like, get them a phone when you're ready for them to see pornography, for example. <laughs> like, if you're not ready to talk about that, they're not ready to have a phone. Because, again, they're not seeking it out. I mean, how many of us have gotten spam messages or accidentally miss Google searched something and, you know, boom, it's just there. And, yeah. You know, I think I'm being a bit cheeky, but I, I really think the conversational piece of this has to be a part of that decision. And if you're not ready to talk about that, they're not ready to have it. But also, to be clear, they're going to see it anyway. They're going to get it yes. through their friends' yes. phones, you know. And so, I, I mean, I'm afraid parents aren't off the hook on this. This is now a non-optional conversation starting from... Yeah pretty much the time they interact on any sort of digital device. And yeah. I think that is something parents aren't really equipped with, right? It's it's a very, it feels like too much too soon, but yeah. I always ask parents, like, what would you rather them learn about it from you or from a YouTube? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, well, I think those are some very harsh, um, you know, in a good way, you know, yeah. you know very stark questions uh, yeah. that you're asking. And I mean, you know, I'm listening to you on a radio show and that's, first question brought me up abruptly you know yes and yes yeah, yes did, yeah. <laughs> yeah and again you know it's it's not even kids are naturally curious right and and yeah. again i mean i i can think of so many examples like my son was really into harry potter of course at age eight or nine and he wanted to look sure. up he wanted a scarlet colored robe for you know a harry potter outfit yeah it yeah. looked on our, you know, Amazon and, you know, you type in the word scarlet robe and you get lingerie. I see, I see yeah. where you're going. <laughs> yeah. And again, yeah. It's, I, I, even I'm sitting there with him doing it and I was just, you know, my jaw dropped. Oh my gosh, I didn't even yeah. think about that. Right. So again, yeah. it's, it's often it through an innocent question and, you know, we yeah. just have to be, it's a side by side partnership parenting in the digital age. You know, you just, it, it there's so much. Uh, tension and stress around it and we have to move away from the battles and move towards the fighting with or fighting yeah. for our children as opposed to fighting against them you know yeah yeah, yeah. 
So to stick with parents a minute, because yes. I think, you know, to, to, to look at, you know, those issues and, and whether providers are responsible, that's probably a whole other show. But yes, stick with parents. Where does where are the sources of pressure on parents? Hmm. Yes. Um, you, to provide mobile devices, you mean? Yes. Yeah. To give in, to, yeah. yield, to just collapse. And, and yeah. Well, I think parent parent peer pressure, for sure. I, I always say parenting is the judgiest sport I've ever played. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, it's all like as a parent and I'm, you know, I'm 45. So I'm a end of Gen X, beginning of that millennial generation. Yeah. And I grew up a very analog childhood. Right. And so I came to digital, you know, especially social media when I was a parent of a newborn, right? And and Facebook was coming yeah. out and I was interacting with all my mom friends and mom groups online. And we were constantly comparing, is your kid doing this? Is your kid doing that? And, you know, on the one hand, it was great to feel support. I'm not alone. I have all these people I can count on. And then it quickly also became a deep insecurity of like, oh my gosh, so-and-so's kid's doing that, but my kid's not, right? This yeah. was 15 years ago. It's only magnified and now our kids are doing it, right? So I think parent pressure um, from peers via social media is a huge part. I think culturally, there's a lot of pressure on parents, but in particular mothers to, you know, do all, be all, be perfect, be a, have a career, be a great mom, you know, that that's problematic. Um, I, and think I think we see that lately. Yes, it used yes. to be, it, it would have been the child and, yes. you know, the child would have said, oh, so-and-so and such-and-such -and -such is getting a mobile phone. Yes, for sure. You know, we're moving from primary school to, to secondary school, elementary to, to yes. school or whatever. Everybody will have one. I'll be left out. But yes. I think, yes, I think that's another change I would have seen in recent times. Mm, you get yes. this kind of sense of one-upmanship. Absolutely. My child and my child will have a better phone than all those other children. Oh, yes. Class, oh, yes. You know? Yes, yes, very much. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I, I yeah. that was the last thing I was going to add was that there's also the pressure from kids, you know. And but here's yeah. the thing, like yeah. I said to my parents 30 years ago, well my everybody else has this pair of jeans or this bare brand of shoes and my, you know, it's some of this is developmentally completely normal for children to say these things. But the difference yeah. is, you know, I think parents feel a different level of pressure to give it, to provide it. They're made to feel that we can't live without it. A lot of families don't have landlines in their homes anymore. So what no. used to be a way to communicate isn't available. But, you know, and I should say that that's also one of the biggest complaints I hear is like, well, I don't want to give my kid a phone, but, you know, that's how their friends are communicating. Like, how are we supposed yeah. to solve yeah. this? I actually have a very unique solution for that, that I've solved oh. with my own daughter, which mm -hmm. is we share a phone. So she uses my phone number she's 12 now entering middle okay. school here mm -hmm. and for the last year i have i mean you know the poor kid has me as her mother so we've talked about this for years <laughs> <laughs> so she knows it's coming but i do feel like you know she's been very well informed and in some ways this experience has been so powerful for both of us because you know she can text as many people as she wants it's all you know we we because it's a apple product of course she can do it from a, a, a tablet and i can do it yes. from a phone and so that helps give yes. her a little independence 
but I can see everything. She can also、okay. see what I type, though. And so,、yeah. you know, parents sometimes are like, "Well, that's my private text messages." But then I say, "Nothing's private on the internet. You shouldn't assume、yeah. that your texts are private, even if your child's not looking at them." So. Yeah. You know, it's a good lesson I, for all of us. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I'm not sure how many people here in Northern Ireland or the UK would take that up because I think there'd be a lot of fears on the part of parents. But, yeah,、um, and well, you know, it's a good first solution, step.、Yeah. It's a first step too. You know, and and、yeah. I don't want to say that it works. I know it won't work for every parent-child duo, but I、yeah. think it, there are benefits to it, and you know, it's. It's it is working for my family right now. I'm very willing to say that in a year that might not be the case. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But、yes. I suppose what I hear you talking about, or what I hear you saying there, really is, you know, about keeping the relationship between、yes. you and your daughter very much open, very much two way, very、yes. much full on trust. Yes.、Uh, yes. And so on. Yes, Emily, that's it. That's to, it. Yeah. We need to take a short break now, and、okay. we're going to listen to the news. We'll be right back after these messages, everybody. Okay. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, good evening, and welcome back, everybody. After that summer break, well, if you could call it a summer, certainly if you lived in Northern Ireland, you saw plenty of rain. But I hope you all had a fantastic. It's time for a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German, and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability, or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills through inclusive and relatable content. The new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com/mflgcse24. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. BBC News reports on GCSE results and the impact resits in English and maths could have on poor 16 providers. According to figures it has published on the news website. Over 167,000 pupils in England received Grade Three or below in maths, whilst 172,000 failed English language. The number of pupils not achieving Grade Four in English language is highest for a decade. The Association of Colleges has estimated that the extra GCSE resits could cost around £16 million for the year, and highlighted the yo-yo effect the pandemic has had on resits. Making planning a huge challenge. Julie McCulloch of Education Union Askell said resits were demoralising for students, and reform of English and maths qualifications was badly needed. Last year, only 20% of those retaking a maths GCSE achieved Grade Four or above. The BBC also reported on GCSE pass rates in England, Wales, and Northern Ireland as falling. The drop was steepest in England, but in Wales and Northern Ireland, grades were always meant to be higher. Analysis on the news website also indicates that in England, the gap between regions with lowest and highest proportions of GCSE passes has grown, 
and that state schools had a steeper fall in pass rates than in private schools. Schools Week features a story on A-level results and the widening attainment gap between North and South. According to data published on its website, the North East now has the lowest proportion of A-star and A-grades, lower than pre-pandemic levels, at 22%. At the same time, London and the South East have recorded the biggest rises when compared to 2019. Labour's Shadow Schools Minister said the results showed the failure of the government's levelling up agenda. The article discusses a range of factors which could contribute to the disparity across the best and worst performing regions, including existing long-term deprivation exacerbated by the pandemic, food insecurity made worse by the current cost of living crisis, and more usual factors such as attendance, device access and the use of catch-up schemes. Full details can be found on the Schools Week website. The Guardian also takes a look at academic outcomes for pupils this time through the lens of those referred to social services during childhood. It states that data suggests these pupils are twice as likely to fail GCSE maths and English than other pupils. Data from a three-year period found 53% of teens who had been referred to social care did not achieve a grade four pass in both the GCSE subjects. This is in contrast to 24% in those not subject to a referral. The analysis was carried out by the charity Action for Children. It is the first study to examine data for children with a referral rather than just those who receive support. Around 318,000 children a year are referred to social care, although many do not meet thresholds to receive support. The Guardian also featured comments from school leaders on the impact high levels of absence and poor mental health of pupils have had on outcomes for some. Many cited a lack of formal support for pupils and their families, contributing to further strains on school staff as they tried to plug gaps usually filled by other services such as social care and the NHS. Following on from its examination of regional disparity in academic outcomes across different regions, Schools Week also reports on proposals for elite six forms being given the go-ahead. The Eaton Star 16 to 19 Free Schools, a collaboration between Eaton College and Star Academies, will open in Dudley, Teesside and Oldham. This is part of the 15 new free schools announced by government in the last week. The aim is to improve education standards and get more pupils from the North and Midlands to Oxbridge. The Sixth Form Colleges Association has, however, warned that more sixth forms could lead to existing high-performing provision being unnecessarily disrupted. Eaton College will provide financial and extracurricular support through its partnership with STAR. Education Secretary Gillian Keegan commented on the 15 new schools saying, we want to make more good school places available to families. The 15 schools also include two new university technology colleges, the first to be approved in five years, and a Brit School North to be opened in Bradford. The sixth form sector has reacted to the new plans, saying that in the 55 education investment areas, there are already enough colleges and school sixth forms in the areas to meet need. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. It's time. For it's time. Hello and welcome back. Emily, are you there? Can you hear I'm me? I'm here, yes. Great, 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 great. 
So, Emily, we're running out of time on what's turning out to be a very hot topic. Uh, yes. And I'm sure a lot of teachers on, uh, in fact, I would say across the planet, are busy uh, stressing about mobile phones and their use and their misuse and, and so on today. So do you have any specific, uh, you know, solutions or anything that could be applied to schools? Yes, in terms of uh, mobile device management, I think, you know, certainly a blanket ban is an important start. And, you know, I would encourage any school exploring that to approach it as universally as possible. So if that, you know, if teachers are using their personal devices to text one another during the day, I can see that as a tool, right? I can see why teachers might do that. Is there an alternative? Because it is very difficult to ask students not to do that when teachers are going to do that in front of them. And, you know, I think it contributes to the culture as a whole that we are doing this together. This is us as a community wanting to make our community better. So anytime, any approach to, you know, decreasing mobile use needs to apply to all of the the school community, right? That would be one Mm -hmm. of my first tips. I also think it's really valuable to invite kids to be a part of the process in making those decisions. I always feel like kids are in in a beautiful way, very egocentric. So they want to know why it matters to them or why it applies to them or why they should care. And so how can you include them in conversations about you know, digital tech. And I, I use the phrase, go backward to go forward, right? So maybe it's not eliminating them first. Maybe it's a conversation as a school community, as teachers in classrooms, whatever, to say like, well, what's working about this and what isn't, you know, like, what mm-hmm. do we wish were different? What's hard about having devices at school? What, what is good about it? I mean, again, I don't want it to, you know, we have to avoid being too biased. On the other hand, I will say that the research backs it up over and over again, that it's better for kids <laughs> to not have them at school. So, yeah. but you yeah. know, it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit like, don't, you don't need to try to convince them of it. I think kids are often underestimated at how smart and capable they are and insightful they are. And so sometimes just letting them articulate it and say, that's a great idea. Let's try that. Right. Is going to be yeah. a lot easier than saying, here's the top down approach we're going to implement. So mm-hmm. I have lots of ideas. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Cause I think one of the things schools really want to do, they want to avoid conflict and certainly yes. that head on uh, kind of conflict that you do kind to, you do tend to get, yeah, and you might get it initially with with the child in the corridor or the classroom or or something, but yes. very quickly. Uh, yeah, in, in fact, here the child could go to the toilets immediately, and the parent could arrive uh, yep. within minutes. Yep, uh, and you have more conflict. So I think schools want to avoid conflict. Yes, um, yes, but they want to be able to use technology well. Uh, as you said, it's a very important tool yeah. for learning. Uh, it's going to be a lot of people's livelihoods in the future as well. But again, you know, I think, and you know this as a teacher, like, as I said, it's the skills first, right? So, you know, even leading um, employment, people who like look at future employment, you know, yes, they're going to be technological skills required, but they're not going to be the skills that these children learned in second grade or when they were 10. You know, it's going to be skills like uh, relationships, you know, how do you communicate with your colleagues? How do you problem solve? How do you, you know, deal with challenging co-workers that is going to determine a child's success these tech the, the beautiful thing about technology is it's becoming easier and easier to learn and so 
there isn't a need to to do it when they're five years old. I mean, there's there's a value in introducing things slowly and in developmentally appropriate ways and, and for entertainment. I get it. I mean, there are fun things you can do, but I don't believe it's a requirement. I don't believe it's a must, you know, that far more important are the relationships and the people skills and the executive function skills that need to be in place. I always joke, you know, when I learned, you know, the, the computer game Oregon Trail was popular when I was in elementary school, but I don't use those skills in my tech life today, right? Like what's relevant now is going to be very different in 10 years. So kids can learn it. They will learn it, right? And so anyway, all that is yeah. to say is like, it will come and it can be there. And you're right, it is the future, but it isn't at the expense of all of the things that we know do matter for healthy adulthood and, and learning and, and children. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah. So what, what's the, you know, is there anything electronic? Is there any technological way of managing this kind of technology? I do. <laughs> I do remember that our technology department got yes. hold of a blocker or something, some kind of signal blocker. So, you know, the children hated being up in technology because their phones didn't work. And obviously yes. the staff didn't say they had a, a signal blocker. They said, oh, sure. it's, it's just, a, it's just a, you know, a dead area in the building or something like that. You know? sure. But I'm just wondering, I'm just yeah. wondering, is there a technological way? I, it's not I have really a, very, a technological yeah, problem. But... Well, I, I, I think that is often the sol- solution that people search for. And it is not going to be the one we hope it will be because first of all, I always ask parents, you know, who programmed the VCR when you were a child, right? It was us. It was the kids. (laughs) The kids are always going to find the workaround. I hear this every single day. And it's not just from parents. It's the kids on their school computers or at school. Like they know how to get around it. So that doesn't, I call it digital whack-a-mole. I don't know if you guys, if you have that game in in the UK, but we uh, we know the game. (laughs) (laughs) So I call it digital whack-a-mole because it's like, like you try to block one thing and it, you know, another thing's going to pop up, new platforms constantly. So, you know, it's not to say, and this is true for parents and parental controls, it's not to say that those can't be one tool in your, in your toolkit. But when we rely only on those, we are setting ourselves up for disaster because there, it cannot be the only, it's not the silver bullet we want it to be. And so... You know, I, I wish there were, I have, I have, in fact, an essay on 10 reasons why I don't recommend <laughs> that approach. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, it comes back to relationships, uh, you know, co- communication, talking about why it's in alignment with the values of the school or of a family, you know, and I think humility on a part of adults who are guilty and, and complex in their own use of tech, um, you know, and coming together again. I I think that's so true, Emily. I do. I think it's so true that this comes down to a fundamental personal and interpersonal thing. Yes. You know, the the phone doesn't work or operate itself. Yes. It's, it's the child operating it. It's the parent operating it and saying it's how they respond, you know, when they're caught using it inappropriately and so on. And then it's a question of, how does the school, how does that individual, somebody like me in a school, how do they react? You know, are you aggressive? Yeah. Are you impatient? Are you, you know, are you punitive or, or right. whatever? Right. One of the difficulties, you know, I used to find as a school leader and manager is, well, you know, you've got you and you've got your good staff you can rely on and, and yeah. so on and so forth, but you've got 550 or more children. It's- 
and they've all got phones, you know, and it's really difficult yes. to, you know, there's just so much of a wave yeah. of tsunami to yes. deal with because you deal with one, you deal with it successfully, but you walk around the corner and there's well, that's, Another phone issue. that's the whack-a-mole, right? I mean, it's that just constant. <laughs> and, you know, I always say like books don't have algorithms, you know, like paper yeah. is not uh, going to have a, a loop of, you know, ongoing video feeds. Right. And so mm -hmm. I do, I know I sound old school and old fashioned perhaps, but we have decades of research about what children need to learn best. And none of it requires technology. Again, that's not yeah. to say it can't be introduced as a tool in very intentional ways, but yeah. especially for young children, it's not needed. And, and so they, young children do not need social media. Children, even middle school, high school age, do not need phones. They want them and they feel pressured to have them. And I understand that. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's going to take some courageous adults to say no and set limits and start modeling it, right? Like that's the, the other piece of it. I think that's what it does. Yes. And there is that fear. And we've talked about it already that, you know, if you don't allow your child a mobile phone, yes. you yes. are going to just kind of separate them out and, you know, you're, yes. you're going to cause them issues and, and problems. Yeah. Well, and, you know, there's a wonderful story that uh, was shared with me by a, an ed, ed psych person recently about a school of fish, right? You know, how does a school of fish change, know when to change direction in the ocean, right? You know, they're swimming along and how do they know? Yeah. And it takes a fish, one, to peel away and to mm -hmm. shift that momentum. And not just one fish, but actually two, three, and four need to follow before the entire yeah. group will follow. And of course, you know, I'm a former English teacher, so of course I'm ending here with a metaphor. <laughs> but yes. Yes. how do we become those first fish? You know, what is it going to take for us as teachers, schools, parents, to be the first fish. I am going to be the unpopular parent who says no or delays my kids' access. They do have it. They have some. But like, what is it going to take for a school to be that first fish? And and it's yeah. going to be hard. But you have to find your second, third, and fourth fish to go along with you, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think those are human qualities, you know, that, yes. that are hard to, you know, the courage and so on. Yes. yes. Emily, we are nearly out of time. We've got one more question yes. left. As is traditional now on this program, I ask, if you had a magic wand and only one spell to cast, what change would you make to education that would significantly improve the lot of teachers? Now, yes. Emily, I'm going to give you a minute to think about that because we just need to listen to these messages. We'll okay. be right back after okay. this. For a fresh start to language learning. Pearson Edexcel's new student-centered French, German and Spanish 2024 GCSEs cater to the needs of all learners, regardless of their background, ability or reason for studying. Rooted in learned language knowledge, their assessments are transparent and accessible, allowing all students to showcase their language skills. Through inclusive and relatable content, the new Pearson Edexcel MFL GCSEs build a shared cultural capital that helps students develop an understanding of and appreciation for the wider world. Find out more at go.pearson.com forward slash MFL GCSE 24. You, well, you've got magical powers. Maybe you're Hermione. You've got a magic <laughs> wand and only one spell to cast. What would you, uh, what would you, what spell would you cast? 
that would yes. significantly improve the lot for teachers? Well, we touched on it earlier, and the answer I would give is to unstandardize education so that we can allow teachers to do what they do best and to trust them, because we talked about yeah. trust, that kids yeah. will be okay even if things are slightly different from class to class, because we know that they learn best when they feel connected to their teacher and they are inspired by their teacher. And that's going to look a little bit different for each teacher. So. That's what I would do with my magic wand. That sounds really great. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah. I'm all on for those kind of changes. Yeah, and I think yeah. um, I think we learned a lot, you know, from lockdown and the closure or yes. partial closure of schools. And you know, I think we've just gone back to a kind of a way now, and we've kind of thrown out or or we've not kept some of the positive and good things that we learned from lockdown. Yeah. And that might be one of them. You know, to just a, a, a return to a much more Yes. Human kind of interaction that would build yes. the trust and courage that we've been talking about. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I agree. 100%. Teachers yeah. are really important. <laughs> they are indeed. They are vital. Yeah. Yes. Emily, it has been a great pleasure uh, talking to you. It's really you. clear. It's so hard to believe that you're thousands and thousands of miles away. But, yes. Emily, you've been a magnificent guest. Thank we've learned you. a lot. And I Thank hope so. You begin to uh, implement some of the ideas and thoughts that you have thank, thank you. you very much yes thank you for having me have a wonderful day you too <laughs> bye-bye you've been listening to teachers talk radio tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org we look forward to hearing from you next time on teachers talk radio